0: Hello. This is William Fink, and this is Christogenea Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August third, two thousand and eighteen. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. In recent weeks, we have presented both our own views and those of Clifton Amihaiser on the ridiculous so-called sixth and eighth day creation theory. Now we shall address another issue which is very similar to that theory, which is the idea that certain races of hominids from which we have the non-white races of today were among the living creature or the beast of the earth created in Genesis chapter 1 where we read, and God said from verse 24, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and the beast of the earth after his kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps upon the earth after his kind, and God saw that it was good. This is the usual fallback position for those who endeavor to squeeze the beast races of hominids, the so-called non-white races, into the creation of God, as if any of them could possibly be good. When I began my presentation of the Only True Adam of Genesis series in late June, I explained that I did so in part to address certain so-called pastors in Christian identity who cling to this fallacy of an eighth day creation and have the nerve to ridicule us for refuting it. Now one of those same individuals, whom I will not yet name, is attempting to argue with me in social media over the idea that Yahweh created the non-white races as beasts so he clings to two ideas for the creation of non-whites the sixth and eighth day heresy and this concept which we will begin to address here this evening one way or another there are so many fools who feel that they have to squeeze non-whites into the creation of God when all this time a tree of the knowledge of good and evil representing the corruption of Yahweh's creation by fallen angels, stares them in the face and they overlook the significance. So a friend made a post in social media of some of the things that I said in that first series. And this fool, who lives in the Texarkana region, if I remember correctly, responded to that by posting an article from another so-called pastor from Indiana, and neither will I name him yet. I will name him soon. But his article proves that these people do not study the scriptures. Rather, they formulate ideas based on their own opinions, promote those ideas as doctrines, and do not even check so much as a strong concordance to find whether those ideas have any merit the article which he posted is called where to look in the Bible for blacks it is subtitled in all capital letters beast Chaya Negro which reflects the claim that the Hebrew word Chaya is a reference to Negroes We are not going to reproduce the entire article, but after attempts to explain the different words for animals which are found in Hebrews chapter 1, I'm sorry, in Genesis chapter 1. The different Hebrew words for animals, that's where I wanted to insert that word, which are found in Genesis chapter 1. Explaining, for example, that the Hebrew word behemoth is a reference to quadrupeds, then the article states We are concerned with the Hebrew word cheya, which means living creature, and which we feel refers to the following biped or, in parentheses, two-legged beasts. Then, the article reasserts the connection by stating, Those who have clearly traced this Hebrew word cheya throughout the scriptures, under the English word beast, know it it is speaking of the Negro. Now we, meaning Clifton Emmehizer and I, would wholeheartedly agree that Negroes are beasts and not men. We would also agree that Negroes fall into the category of beast or are one possible subject in certain scriptures that refer to beasts. But that does not mean that the Hebrew word chaya is a specific reference to Negroes as our writer claims. I won't call him an author and it does not mean that Negroes can be found in the Genesis creation account as the fool from Texarkana and so many like him insist but this is where they really sound stupid and where their assertions really fall apart the article goes on to ask several questions a whole list of about 15 and we're going to cover them all citing specific Bible verses so we read this was Joel speaking of a beast or a field hand in Joel chapter 2 verse 22 what kind of a beast do you know that wears clothing sackcloth as we read in Jonah chapter 3 verse 8 what kind of a beast has hands as reported in Exodus chapter 19 verse 13 now, checking a simple Strong's Concordance, a book which you could buy online for about $12, perhaps. The word for beast at Joel chapter 2, verse 22, is the word behemoth and not chaya. So the writer himself, according to his own article, must be willing to admit that it refers to quadrupeds as he himself defined the word behemoth in his opening statements furthermore checking strong's concordance or any source any other source for the hebrew at jonah 3 8 and at exodus 19 verse 13 the hebrew word for beast in both instances is also behemoth. The author of this article then asks what type of beast is capable of mixing or sowing his seed with the seed of Adam as described in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 27 but the word for beast in Jeremiah thirty-one, twenty-seven, is also behemoth and not chaya. So how did these men insist that chaya is a hebrew word which means negro this is foolishness and it is what clifton and i have been arguing against for many years we do not need this foolishness and this sloppy scholarship in christian identity for many years i have taught that the beasts of jeremiah chapter thirty one were the non-white races the concept first appears in my paper The Immigration Problem and Biblical Prophecy which according to the metadata found in Clifton Heiser's computer files was first prepared as a PDF for publication by him on July 24th, 2006. So I wrote that at an even earlier time than I had remembered. But that does not mean that they are the beasts which Yahweh created. And they are certainly not the Chaya of Genesis chapter 1. Somewhere in my pragmatic Genesis series, I explained from apocryphal scriptures, and I've also done this in other places. I did it in my Luke, in my commentary on the Gospel of Luke, probably around chapters 10 or 11 if I had to guess. Somewhere in my pragmatic Genesis series I explained from apocryphal scriptures the sin of the fallen angels who mingled their seed with the seed of all sorts of quadrupeds in order to corrupt the creation of God. And the Enoch literature tells us that the results were giants and monsters and other sorts of unnatural beasts, even demons this is why the non-white races on the rare occasions that they are mentioned in scripture are referred to as behemoth even though they are bipeds and not quadrupeds because they are certainly not men in these instances behemoth is a pejorative which is an otherwise innocuous word that is purposely used in a derogatory manner such as calling a person a dog or a goat or a clown then the author of this article or I should say the writer of this article asks what kind of male beast could a woman lust after and lie down thereto and cause God to have them executed in a righteous manner or in a righteous judgment citing Leviticus 20 verse 16 and he asks what kind of a female beast could a man lust after and cause a penalty of death to be decreed by God likewise the word for beast in both of these passages is behemoth and not chaya the initial premise of this article was a very bold statement that Chaya was a word for Negro in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible. None of these words, which they make examples of, are taken from the word Chaya. All of these words Beast, that they make examples of, are taken from the word Mehema, which they themselves admit is a reference to quadrupeds, to four-footed animals. The word could be understood literally. And throughout history, sex with four-legged beasts has been a common perversion, especially among the non-white races to this very day. Modern pornographic media and the internet are littered with examples of this, upon which I should not have to elaborate. This also being the sin of the fallen angels, it is not irrational that the law is forbidding bestiality. Ostensibly, for the same reason, Yahweh had commanded Joshua to slay the flocks and herds of the Canaanites, as well as the Canaanites themselves. On the other hand, Negroes, and all other races would fit into the description of beast in these passages simply because they are not man having intercourse with them is indeed the pursuit of strange flesh which the Apostle Jude described as fornication it is also the way of Balaam which both Peter and Jude made reference to in that same context and associated with the sin of the fallen angels. But that acknowledgement does not mean that these Negroes are the beasts of Yahweh's creation. It was a British identity pastor in Ireland. When we get to Clifton's portion of tonight's program, his name is going to come up right at the beginning. His name was Alan Campbell and he is recently deceased I believe last year maybe two years ago and he first spread the confusion that the Negroes were the beast or Chaya of Genesis chapter 1 while he cited examples throughout scripture where the actual Hebrew word is Bahima, just like our writer is doing here Clifton Amaheiser addresses Campbell's errors in a series, which we are about to present. So, our writer did not create this error, but rather he was too lazy to check Campbell's work before he began repeating it, and he is only really copying from Alan Campbell, which we will also demonstrate. However, here, And in the next passage, which he cited, the writer of this article shows that not only is he too lazy to fact check, not only too lazy to fact check the writers that he follows, but that he himself is dishonest. His dishonesty, at least in a mild way, is first evident, where he asked, What kind of female beast could a man lust after and cause a penalty of death to be decreed by God? Citing Leviticus chapter 20 verse 15. There is nothing in that passage of scripture which attributes the human emotion of lust to the man so the author created a lie rather the passage merely states from the King James Version and if a man lie with the beast he shall surely be put to death and you will slay the beast so there is nothing about the man in that passage having lust for the beast and the beast of course only played a passive role in the act now our our author creates a much bigger lie and actually he creates two lies where he asks what kind of beast would have the ability to keep the vineyard as we find in the Song of Solomon chapter 1 who was incidentally black now I do not know that he copied this part of his paper from Alan Campbell. Perhaps he is extrapolating on what he copied from Campbell. The word beast, in the singular or plural, does not appear in the Song of Solomon. The Hebrew word che does, as an adjective modifying the noun water, to read living waters in chapter 4. But there is no mention of any beasts in the entire book. And the specific form cited by this author, Cheah, does not appear either. Neither does the Hebrew word behemoth for beast. So how does our author imagine that Solomon, in chapter 1 of his song, could possibly be referring to beasts? it is absolutely clear that the writer I'm sorry it is absolutely clear in the opening chapter of the Song of Solomon that Solomon the author of that work is speaking of himself that he is the keeper of the vineyards and that he is black because the sun has looked upon me he lamented that he was forced to do menial work and was ashamed of the result that his skin had turned dark in the sun our writer the the individual who wrote this article on the negro the beast and the word chaya, our writer is a liar Paul mullet. He's a liar and he has an agenda, but he obviously has no care for truth. So he next asks, what kind of a beast cries mightily unto God in Jonah chapter 3 verses 8 through 10? And once again, the Hebrew word for beast in that passage is Behemoth and not Cheah. So our author began with the assertion that the Hebrew word for beast, chea, in Genesis chapter 1, was a specific term for Negroes. Yet in all of his examples from scripture, there is not one time where the occurrences of the word beast that he himself uses as examples come from that word chea. They all come from the word behemoth, which he himself admitted refers to quadrupeds and not to people. The level of stupidity here is astounding. Paul Mullet and Billy Roper and Dalton Stout are clowns for promoting this article and these lies. And none of them are worthy of the title pastor. At one time, early in my own studies, we ourselves were persuaded, and we will see here later in this paper, that in 2010, Clifton still clung to that persuasion. We ourselves were persuaded that Jonah, chapter three, verses seven through nine, referred to hominids as beasts. It probably came from Compare and Swift. But it is simply not true. This is Jonah's record. Jonah the prophet's record of the words of the king of Nineveh. A pagan who did not have a biblical perspective. There is not one example that I have seen In thousands of existing Assyrian inscriptions, and I may have read that many, they're all available at the American School of Oriental Research, hosted at the website for the University of Chicago. And you could find countless translations in PDF format of Assyrian and Babylonian and other related inscriptions I have hundreds of them here on my hard drive. I have seen in thousands of existing Assyrian inscriptions which in indicate that the Assyrians which never indicate that the Assyrians had ever considered any race or class of their own people as beasts never they were always simply men Assyria was a multiracial empire like all others the words of this king cannot be taken for scripture or to prove any point in scripture except to validate the reason for and the success of Jonah's mission. The ancient Assyrians were a very wealthy society. It is evident in their own inscriptions that they adorned their quadrupeds, which they used, it's evident in their own art inscriptions, that they adorned their quadrupeds, which they used for transportation and for religious ritual as well as for agricultural purposes in ornaments overlaid with gold and silver and in expensive fabrics. So the Assyrian king imagined that the beasts should show repentance as well as the men. But that does not mean that those beasts are people created by God this is why we consider those who hold this position to be fools they concoct every lie imaginable in order to squeeze niggers and other unseemly beasts into the creation of God I should say other unseemly corruptions our author then asks four more questions before his article ends citing 2 Peter chapter 2 for all four of them verses 12 through 14 they are what kind of a beast would have eyes full of adultery what kind of beast loves to riot in the daytime what kind of a beast can talk or speak and finally what kind of a beast was made to be taken and destroyed now we would once again wholeheartedly agree that in this passage Peter was referring to beasts in human form, to bipeds and not to quadrupeds. However, when we examine the entire passage in context, going back to like verse 1, we see that Peter's subjects were intruders into the body of Christ, which he related to the angels that sinned who were cast into chains of darkness to await judgment and destruction he did not say chains in darkness as if they were sitting in some pit in the desert but chains of darkness which we would assert is certainly the state of the non-white races and our authors or our writers I had not had time to really edit this presentation our writer's last question where he asks what kind of a beast was made to be taken and destroyed proves our point and refutes his own because everything that Yahweh created in Genesis chapter 1 is good and none of it was created only to be destroyed no doubt all non-white races are beasts but they are not the beasts of Yahweh's creation rather they are products of the sinful corruption of his creation. So Peter then said that these natural brute beasts shall utterly perish in their own corruption ostensibly because they are the products of corruption Now with that introduction as a starting point I shall begin to present and add my own comments and clarifications to Clifton Emeheiser's seven-part series of papers titled Identifying the Beast of the Field. According to Clifton's metadata he had prepared this paper for publication on March 25, 2010 probably probably about 14 months after I was released from prison. Identifying the Beast of the Field, part 1 by Clifton Emma For many years, I have held the position that the biblical designation Beast of the Field often is an idiomatic expression for non-adamic races, such as the Negroid and Mongoloid which I prefer not to capitalize. Clifton wrote those names in all small letters. My late wife, who died in 1993, would refer to them as BOFs, our own secret code code term for them. Every culture has its idiomatic expressions peculiar to their own social conditions. Israel is not an exception to this phenomenon, for the Bible is just loaded with idioms, especially in the Old Testament Hebrew. About two years ago, a very good friend of mine gave me a copy of a video presentation by Pastor Alan Campbell of Belfast, Ireland, entitled, Who Are the Beast of the Field? I would guess that it was made ten years ago, around the year 2000. When I first viewed this video, I was quite impressed, as I agreed with Campbell that the Negroids were indeed included under the biblical idiom beast of the field. I was so swayed by Campbell's reasoning that I decided to write my own version on this topic. But this is where I ran into trouble. Unlike the writer and promoters of the article which we began with this evening, Clifton was careful to check the claims of his sources before he repeated them or their ideas in his own writings. This is the mark of a scholar where those who blindly copy others are merely lazy if they are not just stupid. Early in my own identity studies I was tricked a few times by mistakes made by Compare swift or Capt, and I also learned the hard way to check behind my sources and to prove things for myself. That is what we should all do And in a short time, we would eliminate countless heresies and many charlatans from our Christian identity community. Continuing with Clifton, Campbell started his presentation by appropriately quoting Jonah chapter 3 verses 7 and 8 thusly, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way, and from the violence that is in their hands. And let me stay. That when we read the words which Jonah recorded, it is absolutely plausible that the king had animals in mind and not beast people. Why is that? It's perfectly clear in verse 7. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Herd nor flock sort of seems to define that word beast right there. Clifton continues then Campbell appropriately appraised the context of these two verses. Clifton in 2010 in March of 2010 was still clinging to the idea that these beasts in Jonah 3 eight were beast people I don't exactly recall when I did my first commentary on the book of Jonah but when I did I denied that these were beast people that was um, I have it now I just searched for it very quickly at christgennia that was in December of 2011 I remember when I split with Eli James, I had ridiculed him for asserting that Jonah 3 8 was speaking of people, and that was in January of 2011. So Clifton's writing this in March of 2010, and he still upholds the idea and is supporting Alan Campbell on that. I can't agree with it, but. I have further notes on it a little later, so I'll stop there. I'm getting a I'm getting ahead of myself. Clifton says, then Campbell appropriately appraised the context of these two verses. And then quoting Campbell again. Now if you'll come back to Jonah, let's look at that Jonah passage for just a moment before I go on with it. You are being asked to believe that the beasts in chapter 3, and organized religion tells you that they are four-footed quadruped beasts, you're asked to believe that they would cover themselves in sackcloth. Highly unlikely. You're asked to believe that they would cry unto God. They would use actual speech or language. That's not just highly unlikely, that's downright impossible. You're asked to believe that the beasts, four-footed quadrupeds, repented from evil-doing. That implies a God-consciousness. Do you think that four-footed quadruped animals have a God-consciousness? And turn from the violence that is in their hands, which indicates the ability, citing Jonah, which indicates the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. Now, I have known a lot of intelligent animals. I've never known of ones that could distinguish between right and wrong, of ones that had a God consciousness, or ones that could cry unto God, or ones that could repent in sackcloth and ashes. Now, I will re- I will comment on this. Campbell is actually second-guessing The Motives of a Dead King Jonah merely recorded his words, and his words are not to be taken for scripture. The dead king clearly said, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. So how do you tell birds not to eat? How do you tell herds of animals not to drink? why should we second-guess the motives of a dead king? Or, why should we claim to understand his words on our terms? Maybe they had a different poetic meaning or significance. So, we shouldn't attempt to be able to figure out what, is it, what this Assyrian king is saying but his words are not scripture under any circumstances and as I have already explained and which at this point in time Clifton did not not yet understand the king of Nineveh was certainly referring to four-footed beasts just as re- he, he was referring to to birds where he said flocks or to four-footed animals where he said herds. When I discussed my reasoning with Clifton sometime after this, he did agree with my position. But I do not know if we ever had the chance to discuss that publicly. However, Campbell's description here is plainly dishonest there is no mention of these beasts covering themselves as he said so there is no need to imagine that they must have had human physical capabilities rather the text of Jonah in the King James Version merely has the king exclaiming let man and beast be covered now continuing with Clifton where his contention with Campbell is really over the Hebrew word for beast and Campbell's resulting conclusions. Clifton says, at this juncture, I should point out that I do not disagree with Campbell's premise. My problem with Campbell is how he arrived at his conclusions. As all good Bible students are aware, all premises must be solidly based on the witness of scripture as we shall shortly see. Campbell failed miserably to back up his correct premise with qualified documented evidence from Holy Writ where he stated so let's treat this word, let's treat the word beast as it is rendered in our English you get beast translated from three different Hebrew words the Hebrew word behema, And Clifton tries to correct Campbell here with the word behema. It means cattle or other domesticated quadruped four-footed beasts, sheep, goats, all that manner of domesticated farm animals or farm stock. And then next in the list is the Hebrew word beer. B-I-E-R, he spells it a brute beast, the wild animal like the tigers and the others we saw at the circus here Saturday night I guess at the circus in Northern Ireland where Campbell was from and then there's another item in the list and then we had the people referred to in the Genesis account where it talks of the beast of the field and the people referred to in Jonah and the other dozen or so passages I'm going to read to you tonight and the Hebrew word is Sheva now he says Sheva, not Chaya it's Shevya, a living creature and he spells that a little differently and that living creature is a biped, two-legged creature he's not a wild beast, he's not a domesticated animal He is a creation of his own, above the animal creation, yet separated from Adam-kind. In the first article, which we discussed here, which is posted on Billy Roper's website right now, it is credited to Paul Mullet and dated for February 2017. Now, we clearly see that since Clifton wrote this in 2010, and the quote from Alan Campbell is almost word for word what Paul Mullet takes credit for having written. That Mullet is only a plagiarist and a thief having stolen Alan Campbell's writing which is not even correct and then taking credit for it himself Roper is his accomplice this is another sort of behavior that we must eradicate from Christian identity I will will provide screenshots and a link this evening when I post these notes at Christagenia when you compare Clifton's reproduction of Alan Campbell's words here with the beginning of an article on this word Chaya and the Negro and the Beast which Paul Mullet wrote not only does Mullet copy Campbell's errors but he also copied paragraphs almost word for word Now, Clifton responds to Alan Campbell. I would like it understood that I have in my library vast amounts of lexical data, both in book and electronic form. I don't know from whence Campbell gets Bahima, but strongs or articulates it as Bahama, and it is number nine twenty nine The word beer, B-E-I-R, is 1165 in Strong's, and it is articulated be here, and I fail to find a classification such as tiger, but rather, in the sense of eating, cattle. Campbell's major error, though, is with the word cheviah, which is obviously, which obviously is what Strong has, at number 2423, as she- Sheva, a Chaldean word not found anywhere in the Bible other than the book of Daniel. There were Chaldean forms of Hebrew words which are seem to be introduced into scripture, especially in the later books after the deportations to Babylon and the return. So we see a lot of Chaldean words in Daniel or in Ezra and Nehemiah. But there are actually some words that are claimed to be Chaldean words in the book of Moses, in the books of Moses, the Torah. Not as many, but there are some. Or at least I've read that claim in scholarly journals. Clifton says, this entirely destroys Campbell's thesis, at least from a language perspective, but not necessarily from an idiomatic perspective. There is absolutely no way that Campbell can apply Sheva to Genesis chapter 1 or to Jonah chapter 3 because Sheva isn't the word that appears in Jonah chapter 3 even though Campbell claims that it is it's not it's behemoth where we find the word beast in Jonah chapter 3 here Clifton the exacting analyst took issue with Campbell for his transliteration of certain words but I do not know if Clifton understood that there is a large degree of latitude allowed when transliterating Hebrew into English. Hebrew really has no vowels. And where, for example, T and TH or S and SH can be represented by the same letters. The writer, often having to choose between them, can supply his choice of words. Just like the writer, transliterating consonants in words with no vowels, can supply his choice of vowels. There's no authority to say what's right and what's wrong, except perhaps for the rabbinical Jews. And we shouldn't be compelled to follow the rabbinical Jews. So I don't know if Clifton understood all that at this time. We do not necessarily have to follow Strong's transliterations, although Clifton and many other writers prefer to do so. I would rather write Behemoth, as I have here, than follow either Strong or Campbell. The word is the source of our English word, Behemoth. Clifton does, of course, have every right, and even a responsibility, to call Campbell to task for his rather blatant misidentification of words, which he continues to do as he proceeds. And he says, but there are some who will go beyond Campbell and refuse to take no for an answer as they will seize on Strong's number 2423, a Chaldean word, where it says, from 2418, Cheah, which is another Chaldean word, found only in the book of Daniel. Once arriving at 2418, they will notice Strong's number 2417, another Chaldean word also found only in the book of Daniel except for the lone exception at Ezra chapter 6 verse 10 and assume there must be some connection upon observing Strong's number 2417 they will notice this Chaldean word is articulated Che C-H-A-Y then immediately above 2417 they will notice Strong's number 2416 also articulated Che and they will cry Eureka Then they will seize on to the Hebrew number 2416, Che, and apply Campbell's assertion concerning Jonah and other passages to Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. And Clifton concludes that that amounts to little more than intellectual dishonesty. All this is to somehow include negroids and mongoloids in Yahweh's creation. Really, we have to take the entire context of Genesis 1 into consideration before we concentrate on verses 24 and 25. Now what Clifton is saying, in essence, is that Campbell is telling us that this beast in Jonah is some Chaldean word that only appears in Daniel that means a living creature and even though this Chaldean word, this cheva does not appear in that form in Genesis chapter 1 the corresponding Hebrew word che and cheah which both appear in Genesis chapter 1. The corresponding Hebrew words must bear the same meaning, beast of the field referring to a person, after Campbell's assertion concerning Jonah chapter 3. This is like a ball of string. It's like unwinding a ball of string. How these people, and I've seen... A lot of people in the old Aryan Nations organization and a lot of people in British Israel who are followers of Alan Campbell make these mistakes just because Campbell claims this Chaldean word cheva appears in Jonah chapter 3 as beast. It seems that none of them ever followed up and checked out what Campbell was saying. So they assume, and Eli James also made this assumption back in January of 2011, that the word "cheah" in Genesis chapter 24, chapter 1, verses 24 and 25 must be Negroes. Because Alan Campbell said that "cheah" was the word for beast in all these other passages, including Jonah chapter 3 so clifton's just trying to unwind this ball of string that's hopelessly hopelessly unwindable cuz it's a mess it's like uh, trying to shake a bowl of spaghetti and and have it come out of your your pot the the way it was when when it was found in the box in the first place it it's just not possible you're not going to pour it out of the pot into a bowl and, and have it look like it did in a box, right? Nice straight lines, bundled neatly. It's just not going to happen. So this is a mess, and it's really a mess for one reason. Because Alan Campbell, who was basically a clown, claimed that all these occurrences of this Hebrew word for beasts throughout scripture are from the Hebrew word cheah, when in fact, none of them are from cheah. They're all from Behemoth, which Alan Campbell himself admitted was literally a reference to four-footed beasts of burden. That's what it is, to four-legged animals and cattle, camels and horses and things like that. And then clowns like Paul Mullet, Billy Roper, they take this Alan Campbell stuff, which is all wrong, and they run with it. And Eli James, he's another one that did it, and they insist, for this reason, that these Cheyah, in Genesis 24 and 25, are niggers and other races, and that this somehow proves that these other races were created by God and that's just bullshit it doesn't prove any of that because it's all wrong so Clifton does have every right and a responsibility to call Campbell to task for his blatant misidentification of the words so he continues to do that as he proceeds and he says but there are some who will go beyond Campbell and refuse to take no for an answer and then Clifton walks down the chain of these different similar words, some of them Chaldean and some of them Hebrew, until they get to the word Cheah in Genesis and Che in Genesis chapter one. And Clifton calls that intellectual dishonesty, because it is. Then he he continues by saying, Really, we have to take the entire context of Genesis 1 into consideration before we concentrate on verses 24 and 25. Here is an example, and Clifton only supplies us one phrase from about seven different passages here, but I'm going to read them. Genesis one four, And God saw the light, that it was good. Genesis one ten. What God created in the second day, and God saw that it was good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 12, and God saw that it was good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 18, and God saw that it was good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 21, and God saw that it was good. Genesis chapter 1, verse 25, the sixth day of creation and God saw that it was good Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 a conclusive passage and God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good Clifton says you will notice from all of this that God didn't create anything in Genesis chapter 1 that was not good well then if we conjecture that the non-whites were created in verses 24 and 25 somehow being good we are sending a message to our children grandchildren and great-grandchildren that there is nothing wrong with mingling racially with them but Christ himself said there were bad racial kinds in Matthew chapter 13 verses 47 through 50 and here I will amplify it for a better understanding (coughs) And this is, of course, the parable of the net, which we often cite in this context. It's the go-to place to show that not everything in the world that we know is good. So, not everything could have possibly been created by God, because everything that God created is good. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like under a net that was cast into the sea. Clifton has, of people, in parentheses, parentheses, and gathered of every kind. Clifton properly has, meaning race, in parentheses, because that word is genos, which means race. Which, when it was full, they drew to the shore and sat down and gathered the good, or the good racial kind, into vessels but cast the bad away meaning the bad racial kind so shall it be at the end of the world the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them the bad racial kind into the furnace of fire there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth to that Clifton responds to take Genesis chapter 1 verses 24 and 25 out of context and insinuate that God created the non-white races and label them as good is to give license to miscegenation some people may think that's a far leap but it certainly is not all throughout scripture people are classified into two distinct groups the righteous and the wicked, whether or not the righteous sin or the wicked are imagined to do good, the wheat and the tares, sons and bastards, sheep and goats. Once the other races are given legitimacy in this manner, where they are viewed as a separate category within God's creation, it must be imagined that they have a legitimate existence as a neutral party in the war between the seated woman and the seated serpent nothing is further from the truth that leads us we are then found on a slippery slope which does indeed lead to humanizing and then intermingling with them but in scripture there is never such a third category and the other races are only the flood from the mouth of the serpent which persecutes the woman all those who want to find the non-white races in the creation of Yahweh are really seeking to find a third category for those races by which to justify their existence and they are in essence Taking the side of the devil. Continuing with Clifton. We will now return to Alan Campbell's video, where he mistakenly quotes several passages of Scripture, where he inaccurately applies the Chaldean word, Sheva, where it absolutely cannot be found. Exodus chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. And this is one that Mullet left out when he plagiarized Campbell. And Yahweh said unto Moses and unto Aaron, Take to you handfuls of ashes of the furnace, and let Moses sprinkle it towards the heaven in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become small dust in all the land of Egypt, and shall be a boil breaking forth with blains upon man and upon beast, throughout all the land of Egypt Clifton tells us that Campbell claims that the beast of verse 9 is Sheva, Strong's number 2423 but rather it is number 929 Bahema. it really makes me wonder what kind of lexicon he is using if he is using any lexicon at all Here we see that the errors of Billy Roper and Paul Mullet had originally belonged to Alan Campbell. And these men are merely fools who followed Campbell without checking into his claims. Many others also did this, even Richard Butler. Continuing with Clifton. He, Campbell, comments thusly on a passage. Now if you read the account of the plagues, you will find that there had already been a plague of cattle sickness. You'll find God had already cursed the domestic cattle throughout Egypt. Yet here we find another plague which is experienced both by man and by living creatures which take the form of boils. Clifton tells us, then Campbell moves forward to quote Exodus 9.19. Send therefore now, and gather thy cattle, and all that thou hast in the field. For upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field, and shall not be brought home, the hail shall come down upon them, and they shall die. In this verse, Clifton says, Campbell misidentifies two Hebrew words, cattle and beast. He makes the erroneous claim that cattle is behemoth, number 929, whereas it is rather mikneh, a different word that doesn't appear in Genesis, number 4735, it doesn't appear in Genesis chapter 1. Mikneh is something bought, for instance property, but only livestock, it is quite evident here, Clifton says, that Campbell is trusting his deficient memory rather than taking the time to look up the words and make sure make sure of their strong numbers and meanings. Again, Campbell misidentifies beast at verse 19 as Sheva rather than the correct term behemma. Or as I like to transliterate it, behemoth. This error on Campbell's part should never have been made by any honest man. You cannot just guess at the Hebrew word from which any English word of scripture is translated. The least one can do is check Strong's concordance, which is not perfect, although in this regard it is usually accurate. Any so-called pastor, worth his weight in beef should go to a Hebrew text and check that as well as a concordance so that out of the mouth of of at least two witnesses the matter may be established returning to Clifton he says picking up Campbell a little later on his video he quotes Exodus chapter 19 verses 12 and 13 and thou shalt set Bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that ye go not up into the mount, nor touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death. There shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned, or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come up to the mount. Clifton informs us, again, the beast of Exodus 19, verse 13, is Behemoth, rather than Sheva. This is substantial evidence that we are working with an idiom, rather than a literal meaning for this Hebrew or Chaldean word. And we will see more affirmation of this as we continue with this subject. In fact, it will be behemoth almost every time we encounter the translated word beast on this topic. To his credit, Campbell comments, now you don't really believe that Moses was saying to the four-footed animals in the camp of Israel, their cattle, their sheep, their goats, Moses really didn't say to them, make sure you don't put your paws on a mountain, or you're going to be stoned or shot through. He didn't say paws. The word is hands. There's a different word for paws and hooves of animals in your Bibles. He says, don't let your own people, Israel, touch the mountains. And don't let your beast, your bipedal servants, touch it either, or they will suffer the same punishment. A dumb animal wouldn't have understood his instructions. Can you see Moses saying to the goats that are bleeding, don't you touch that holy mountain with your paws, or hooves, I guess, or you are going to be killed. Campbell consistently points out passages that use behemoth, while asserting that the word chaya or similar words refer to other races in a completely dishonest fashion furthermore it is not likely that israelites had servants at this earlier time since they themselves were recently escaped slaves from egypt mount sinai was only maybe not a month before The the actual exodus from Egypt, Mount Sinai, and the giving of the law was very soon after the exodus. But I rather understand this passage to be an allegory in the law, preserved for a future time, a time for the later people of Israel. The children of Israel are the true mountain of Yahweh, and any beast which puts a hand on one of them should indeed be put to death. Paul of Tarsus later quotes this passage in Hebrews chapter 12, in a way that seems to reveal this meaning. After speaking of the fornication of Esau, he says, For ye are not come under the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor under blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. Then Paul makes a parenthetical remark in verses 20 and 21, and he says, For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart and so terrible was the sight that Moses said I exceedingly fear and quake our race still doesn't understand this they still cannot endure the commandment which says if so much as a beast touch the mountain it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart returning to Clifton he says the next two passages which Campbell addresses are Exodus chapter 2219 where they read, Whosoever lieth with a beast shall surely be put to death, and Leviticus chapter 20, verse 15, verses 15 and 16. And if a man lie with a beast, he shall surely be put to death, and ye shall slay the beast, and if a woman approaches unto any beast and lies down thereto thou shalt kill the woman and the beast they shall surely be put to death their blood shall be upon them Clifton says first of all it should be observed that most all animals have sexual intercourse standing on their feet rather than lying down so these two passages aren't referring to the animal kingdom again you will notice that we are dealing with the word behemoth rather than the word "sheva, as Campbell inaccurately claims and i would assert that these passages can indeed refer to either two-legged or four-legged beasts and the word translated as lying or lie is merely an idiom for the act of sexual intercourse which Clifton may have realized in other contexts. Returning to Clifton once again. To Campbell's credit, he states, now these verses are inserted between the commands of other forbidden sexual relationships. Now, I know the churches expect you to believe that that refers to some sort of abominable wickedness between humankind and animals. I don't believe that for a moment. I believe it is describing what the Almighty rightly calls adultery, and I don't equate that with running off with someone else's wife. It means adulterating or watering down the holy seed, the holy seed line, the blood line, crossing the color barrier, crossing the racial line of distinction that God has set, miscegenation, the intermarriage of the races we read in another portion of scripture how an Israelite cohabited with an alien woman and Phineas ran them through with a spear. And the Bible says, Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace, because he rid the camp of Israel of the sin and the abomination of a mixed-race marriage. Miscegenation is the sin of the last days of Israel. And I would say that while non-whites are certainly beasts, no doubt about it, even if Yahweh did not create them. If we understand the historical context of the passage, it is clearly referring to quadrupeds as well as bipeds, since bestiality certainly was common in the ancient world. It is also quite popular in modern times. Clifton continues, Campbell takes us next to Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 27 which he describes as controversial material even for identity people. Behold the days come saith the Lord that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. Here again contrary to Campbell it's Behemoth rather than Sheba. Although Campbell bases his thesis on the wrong word which even happens to be Chalde rather than Hebrew he gets the context right where he states what is God saying the day will come when Israelites will intermarry with other Adam kind there are other people white people who aren't of the seed of Israel the Israel line is a special line called out of the race of Adam it's a godly seed line It comes on down through Seth, Noah, and Shem, and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. There's lots of white people out there, and they're not all of that chosen line of Israel. And God said the Israelites will marry with them, or other Adamic people. But also, I will mix them, I will mingle them, I'll permit them to be mingled with the descendants of the beasts. What's God saying? The sin of the last day of the nations of regathered Israel is the sin of crossing the color line, of mingling of blood, of racial miscegenation, of the cohabiting, I'm not going to call it marriage, with the beast of the field, with those who are not of the creation of Adamkind in the first place. Of course, we wholeheartedly, agree with Campbell's position on the race issue but I would disagree that there are lots of white people out there who are not of the seed of Israel as Israel had come to dominate the old Adamic world rather completely before the time of Christ and many remnants of the other Genesis 10 nations were overrun with aliens, especially with the rise of Islam. It is evident, however, that there are some other people, white people in Europe and elsewhere, who are not necessarily of Israel. But they are never beasts, not in that sense. Campbell was of the British-Israel persuasion, which maintained the error that Germans were Assyrians. And he doubted the, and they doubted, the Israelite heritage of other European nations. Clifton seems to ignore this facet of Campbell's assertions. And he continues and responds by saying, I agree almost wholly with what Campbell is stating here except for his comment that Israel will be mingled with the living creatures actually these beast people to whom he refers can only be considered the walking dead or zombies for it was only Adam who received Yahweh's breath of life the spirit being the real life in that sense this is absolutely true So the Apostle Jude informs us that the non-whites among us, which he calls spots in your feasts of charity, are trees whose fruit withers, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. And ostensibly, they are twice dead because once their bodies die, They have not the spirit of God by which the Adamic race lives an eternal life. Jude then relates them to the fallen angels by referring to them as wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever where we once again see that Yahweh did not create them. Clifton continues his criticism by using the Chaldean or Aramaic word, Sheva, rather than the correct Hebrew, bahama He acquired a wrong definition from Sheva, and chaya meaning to live. Many are making a similar mistake by using 2416, the word Che, which is found at Genesis one twenty four, as it also has the definition of alive and imagining that it is the word which describes the creation of the other races. Paul made this distinction between Adamic man and the other races very clear at Romans chapter 8 verse 11 where he wrote but if the spirit of him that raised up Joshua Christ from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Such people who are void of the breath of life breathed into Adam, when they die, they are considered twice dead in Jude verse 12. The first stage is the walking dead, and the second stage is the second death, which is referred to in Revelation chapters 2, 20, and 21 therefore living creatures does not describe the non-white races for all the non-Adamic peoples are the spawn of Satan serpent seed. Campbell couldn't be more wrong when he stated God created the Negroids and Mongolians for a purpose for his own glory. They are rather fallen angel kind mixed with animal kind. And here Clifton cites the Book of Giants from the Dead Sea Scrolls, a new translation by Michael Wise, Martin Abbeck, Jr., and Edward Cook, on page 247, where there is a translation of the scroll known as 1Q23, fragments 1 and 6. That portion of the Dead Sea Scrolls contains some of the Enoch literature that informs us that the fallen angels in their rebellion had taken all sorts of beasts which Yahweh did create and mixed their seed with these beasts to create giants and monsters and demons, the, which are the spirits of bastards, and and that's what the Enoch literature states, which explains a hell of a lot and clarifies an awful lot in relation to the epistles of Peter and Jude and, and the revelation and the parables of Christ and the nature of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which is the tree that really represents all of the other races and the serpent is the representative of that tree Clifton continues Campbell takes us next to Exodus chapter 23 verse 29 I will not drive them out from before thee in one year lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field multiply against thee now in this one place that word beast comes from Strong's number 2416 which is a form of the word che it is the word che according to Strong's or living creature Clifton says, Campbell is wrong on two counts of the above passage. One, he believes the beast at Exodus chapter 23 verse 29 are the other races. And two, he claims the word is cheva, number 2423, but it is not. It is number 2416, che. This is very important. As there are others besides Campbell who are attempting to bring in Negroes and Mongols under Yahweh's creation at Genesis chapter 1 verses 24 and 25 with the Hebrew word 2416, Che. But now we have prime evidence that number 2416. Che at Genesis chapter 1 verse 24 simply means wild animals as it also means here in Exodus chapter 23 verse 29 Exodus twenty three twenty nine, Yahweh tells the children of Israel talking about the Canaanites that I will not drive them out before thee in one year lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field multiply against me, and that word beast is the word che. It's the only passage that Campbell points out where the word for beast is actually related to the word that he claims, cheva. All the other passages came from "behema" or behemoth. So Campbell lied about all the other passages, but Clifton's assertion is that Campbell's illustration here in this verse also proves our point and not Campbell's and it does the people who argue that the beasts of the field or the non-white races often go overboard and insist that the idiom is meant in passages where the scripture is actually referring to mere four-legged animals One thing they miss when they assess Exodus chapter 23 verse 29 is that the people being driven out incrementally lest the beasts of the field multiply against thee were not white. They were mixed race Canaanites and therefore they would also be beasts. So the beasts of the field must have referred to four-legged animals and other critters and not to hominids. Furthermore, there is no supporting archaeological evidence that Negroes or Chinamen were found in the land of Canaan in any significant numbers at this time in any numbers at all and most probably they were not found there at all so this passage cannot have anything to do with non-whites. Continuing, Clifton is going to cite this commentary by Jameson Fawcett and Brown on Exodus chapter 23 verse 29 but first he advises his readers to notice the description of the beast given here quoting Jameson Jameson Fawcett and Brown we can, we can make nothing out of this description unless by sea is meant the Dead Sea, which the Jordan into which the Jordan empties itself. On this view, the Canaanite inhabited the southeastern extremity of Palestine west of the Jordan. I'm sorry, I'm actually looking for this reference to sea in Exodus chapter 23. And it's not found in until verse 31. And I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea even unto the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert under the river. So that's what they're referring to but they're saying that it must refer to the Dead Sea rather than the Red Sea. I don't think that's necessary, but that's what the commentators have stated. We can make nothing out of this description unless by sea is meant the Dead Sea, into which the Jordan empties itself. I don't know how the Dead Sea could be called the Sea of the Philistines. On this view, the Canaanite inhabited the southeastern extremity of Palestine west of the Jordan. Apart from this, it is but natural to suppose that the reason of the association of these three tribes is that the part inhabited by the Canaanite was also a wild and dangerous region. Now look at the northern extremity of Palestine with its mountains forming the southern ridges of the Lebanon range, which are even at the present day full of the haunts of the buffalo, jackal, wolf, hyena, the ounce which is a sort of snow leopard lion bear tiger leopard lynx and serpents vipers, scorpions, centipedes the tarantulas the hornet and the wasp look again at the southern part of palestine with its road from jerusalem to jericho a road which travelers unite in depicting in the most gloomy hues as a wild and melancholy region. The aspect of the whole is said to be of peculiarly savage and dreary, vying in this respect with the wilds of Sinai. The wilderness of Judea is full of extensive caverns in which David wandered about it is the region of which so late as in the time of Christ wild beasts are spoken of as inhabitants in Mark chapter 1 verse 13 further to the south is Edomia with the great eastern desert to name which is enough for present purposes now in the historical account of the occupation of these localities there is no instance detailed of overrunning by wild beasts having really occurred. (coughs) And it must be considered, therefore, that the prearrangement described in this passage as to the gradual dispossession of the native tribes is a beautiful illustration of the minute care Yahweh took of his chosen people. One mistake the, um, the commentary makes is to imagine that the flora and fauna of the region were the same then in 1450 BC that they are now or in the 19th century when the commentary was written, it's a pretty old commentary or even at the time of Christ which is 1500 years after the time of Joshua and Moses So we saw Clifton had a few seeming inaccuracies in his citation evidently caused by the process of scanning and using a software program to recognize the text along with the failure to catch all the errors in the editing process which would have been my fault for the most part so I went to his bookshelves to look for the original source and all I found was A Commentary Critical, Experimental, and Practical on the Old and New Testaments by Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Why Clifton said this was from the commentary, practical, and explanatory on the whole Bible by the same writers is beyond me, as that is a separate work, and I do not find it on our bookshelves but the citation was on the page that he cited in a commentary critical experimental and practical on the Old and New Testaments unfortunately Clifton is not around to answer that question now Clifton responds to the commentary in Exodus in regard to Exodus chapter 23 verse 29 and he says Did you notice the kind of beast that occupied Palestine? Although Campbell's premises are quite good on the beast of the field, meaning that sometimes Campbell correctly identifies that beast of the field with Negroes and people of other races, he is wanting in much of his research. There is positively no way that the beast mentioned at Exodus chapter 23 verse 29 could be Negroes. Also, there is absolutely no way that the beast mentioned at Genesis one twenty-four could be Negroes or Mongoloids or any other non-white race and Clifton, as I do, often struggles with what we should call those yellow-skinned gooks over in Asia because Chinaman doesn't really describe them all and Mongols is not an accurate term. The Mongols originally were obviously white and mixed later in history and mongoloids therefore really isn't a very good term but that's the term, the prevailing term that Clifton uses here in this paper and orientals isn't really a good term because white people can also live in the east and asiatics isn't really a good term because white people also live in Asia and the first application of the word the first application of the word Asia was actually to Eastern Anatolia which was entirely white and Greek at one time so what do we call these people that they're just fucking gooks squat monsters maybe that's a better term (laughs) it's kinda a tough call sometimes when you're trying to write a scholarly paper and you really can't use language such as that so here Clifton calls them mongoloids but we have to recognize that that's not the ideal term for those damned gooks so we're stuck with it for now Clifton is absolutely correct both words for beast in these passages are from the Hebrew word che these passages at this passage at Exodus chapter 23 verse 29 And here, it simply refers in general to wild animal creatures such as rodents or large cats or any other sort of furry critters. Now he concludes, since Mark one thirteen is cited above in the commentary, we need to read that one too and he Christ was there in the wilderness forty days tempted of Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered unto him so now we have the two required biblical witnesses we need to establish a matter but do we have a third as recommended by Deuteronomy 1915 yes we do we find our third testimony in 2 Kings chapter 17 verses 25 and 26. The 17th chapter of 2 Kings addresses the second of three deportations of Israelites from Samaria of the northern kingdom by Assyria under King Shalmaneser. After King Shalmaneser had deported the greater part of them, he repopulated Samaria with aliens, read 2 Kings 17 verses 24 through 26. And verse 26 states, Wherefore they spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed, and placed in the cities of Samaria, know not the manner of the god of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the god of the land. This is proof positive that the word che translated beast in Genesis one twenty-four and Exodus 23 verse 29 is speaking of wild animals such as buffalo, jackal, wolf, hyena, lion, bear, tiger, leopard and lynx rather than the non-white races the beast at Genesis chapter 1 verse 24 typify, typifies wild animals not the non-white races. (coughs) As we have often attested, there is no evidence in Genesis that Yahweh created non-white races, and the words of Christ in the Gospels and the Revelation preclude the idea entirely. We will commence with part two of this series, Yahweh willing, from Bristol, Tennessee, next Friday evening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening. And good night. This is for Billy Roper and Paul Mullet and Dalton Stout. i so